The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Cowboys versus Electrovoric Ants, New World Magic and Monsters, and Existential Questions at the Edge of the Solar System, plus part two of my conversation with the editors of and contributors to The Founder Effect. And of course, we continue our ongoing serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. Today, we continue our discussion with Robert E. Hampson, Sandra L. Medlock, David Weber, Mark H. Wandry, Catherine L. Smith, and Brent Roeder about The Founder Effect, an anthology of linked stories out now in trade paperback and ebook formats. If you missed the first half last week, go back and give it a listen. All of our podcasts are archived at bain.com slash podcast. But first, the news. It's time for Bain's January Twisted Time ebook sale. To mark the debut of The Macedonian Hazard by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett this month, save on Twisted Time ebooks by Eric Flint and others. Get $2 off The Alexander Inheritance by Eric Flint, Gorg Huff, and Paula Goodlett, and get $1 off Time Spike by Eric Flint and Marilyn Kosmatka. Plus, save on the Arcane America series. Get $2 off Council of Fire by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt, and $1 off Uncharted by Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt, as well as Collar of Lightning by Peter J. Wax and Etan Colin. The ebook discount applies wherever Bain ebooks are sold, and the sale ends January 31st, 2021 at midnight. The January mass market paperbacks are here. First up, Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Izell, and Christopher L. Smith. 30 years ago, the world ended. Now, 30 years later, humanity has rebuilt, to an extent. Without electricity, human ingenuity has provided some creative solutions. Into this world come a lifelong cowboy, a mystic warrior monk, a beautiful dragon tamer, a runaway cultist, and a mysterious drunken lecher, all searching for the key to reclaiming humanity's future and past. Next up, Council of Fire by Eric Flint and Walter H. Hunt. Haley's Comet, 1759. The comet veers and strikes the earth with nature-altering force. The new world splits from the old. In this changed new world, it is the dawn of real magic and very real monsters. Now, a young English prince must wield his newfound powers to unify the continent, or the new world may well slip into oblivion. And... Frozen Orbit by Patrick Childs. During their long race to the Kuiper Belt, astronauts Jack Tippleton and Tracy Keene unwind a decades-old mystery buried in the pages of a dead cosmonaut's journal. Challenging their own beliefs about the nature of humanity, they will soon confront the question of existence itself. And now part two of my conversation with Robert E. Hampson, Sandra L. Medlock, David Weber, Mark H. Wandry, Catherine L. Smith, and Brent Roeder about the all new anthology, The Founder Effect.
Yeah, and it's fascinating to hear you all talk about this because in reading it, I almost had I feeling, you know, I felt because of all these small and large connections, it felt so planned out that I was like, why didn't uh, Rob just write this thing? If he had done all this work outline or Sandra and Rob write this thing, you know, they did all, they outlined everything. And then to hear, no, they didn't, you know, you guys had a skeleton, but these little connections being just very, some being fortuitous, some, you know, you can go back and we can change 75 to 80 years as Kathy was saying. And it just, it's, it's really kind of astonishing to, to think that uh, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay your benefit, what you put into it, but you know, that it wasn't that micromanaged and yet it there, still came out the way it there did. Are, there are two ways that you can, I think, two primary ways you can successfully manage a shared universe or uh, a collaboration that has multiple authors. One is to be very specific going in, nailing everything down, uh, do a detailed tech Bible, uh, have agreement. You, know, you can have ooh, shiny moment conferences where you discuss, okay, this is how we're going to build the technology, but it's all laid out before the authors venture out and begin writing their part of it. Um, and that has the advantage that continuity errors are reduced to a minimum, okay? And if you do it right, you, you get the participants involved at that stage when you're building everything out before you do it. But it's all there before the stories begin being written. The other way that you can do it is to have a skeleton, a platform that everybody has agreed these are what the stories are going to be about. This is, you know, not this not necessarily how we're going to write the stories, but this is this is the, the the family the stories are going to be in, and here is this minimalist timeline approach. To go that route, you need someone sitting in the control room who is seeing all of this stuff coming in, and figuring out how to slot it together, and to keep everybody up to date. It is by far the more time-consuming way for the editors to do the job. It may not seem that way because you've got all of the time that's invested in building the tech Bible in method one. But in method two, the editor is doing, I'm going to call it a juggling act, but I don't mean that in the sense of he's snatching back from disaster. What I mean is the sense of the fellow who's maintaining the fountain while he's while he's he's juggling and other balls are being inserted into it, and that requires him to keep his eye on the ball a whole lot more than if you've done it and everybody goes away and comes back. They've worked on this detailed timeline and everything ahead of time, and then all the editor does is take each individual increment and read them against each other. For, for continuity errors, instead of going to all of his contributors and saying, here's something new that's been added to the DNA, and I'm making sure that you know about it. It so, was a communication. It was a communication thing. And frankly, this is why we had two editors. Uh, the smoothness with which it all fits together, the smoothness, that's Sandra's work. <laughs> and uh, I was doing the communicating uh, for the most part, but Sandra was getting the stories and she was saying, well, what does it need? 
Uh, we don't want to change anybody's voice. We don't want to change the story being told. Uh, but we want to make sure that there's a consistency here. And, and that was what she did, which, again, meant that she was communicating with the authors and I was communicating with the authors. And frankly, we have a bunch of authors who, who communicated well. This, this project was only possible uh, because, my goodness, uh, because of um, the Internet. Okay, trying to coordinate this any other way. Can't imagine trying to do this the old-fashioned way. No, you know, it, it, this is Eric, Eric Flint was the first one to say to me, you know, you know, collaboration with the internet of being available is totally different from what collaboration used to be, where it was a husband and wife pair or two best friends who lived across the street because they had to sit down and work on the same kitchen table to keep <laughs> things straight. And basically, the internet is a really, really big kitchen table. Okay. Um, and our ability to like shoot manuscripts back and forth to make notations on them and so forth is so much uh, uh, enhanced. And having meetings like this. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, so, I, I tell people, you know, you, you, you do understand that the first Honor Harrington novel was written the year before Al Gore invented the Internet. Okay. Um, I mean, I there was no internet. Um, and, and I feel really old sometimes when I, when there, I think of that. There are two things, there are two things you need when, when editing a group like this. Um, Patience. Time. A really big stick. And <laughs> bandwidth. Because you have to, you have to be able to deal with the fact that you're going to get a, a, a one sentence text message back that takes you three hours to read. I was sure you were going to say butterfly nets at some point. But. So just to follow up real quick on how good the communication was, I helped do a final read through for continuity for the last very last efforts. And we had nine changes that needed to be made, which required a total of 23 words to be modified in the entire book. Almost all of those were updating population figures that we had to create the spreadsheets for before we could verify the numbers. And it was things like switching tens of thousands to fives of thousands or, you know, the reverse, something along those lines. But nine changes, 23 words. Oh. Not bad. So uh, I, I remember when we were talking about um, a number of, uh, of some of the other contributors, we were, we were talking about, okay, so our stories are taking planets, taking place planet side, you know, they're going to be more involved with like the biome or, or this part of this aspect of the colony. Okay, so Rob gave us this, this map of the continents and, and like the ocean currents and physical geography of the plant, the planet, which as someone with my background really helped because it's like, okay, if we've got this mountain range here and these are our prevailing winds, this is our rangeland and these are our deserts and here's our jungle and all this sort of stuff. And so there were a couple of us, um, Vivian and I were like, okay, so we're writing stories that involve the natural wildlife and 
I'm like, no, mine's happening in rangeland over here. And these are the, these are the plants and animals that I name in my story. And that's it. Yours is happening on the other sides of the mountains in some temperate uplands and completely different environments. But it was great to be able to, to coordinate with another author and saying, okay, so just to make sure we're not trying to give, you know, we're not stepping on each other's creative toes or, or, or creating con continuity issues by just saying, okay, my story takes place here, and then my story takes place here, and our biomes don't meet. Well, one thing, one thing that you did is the planet's bigger than Delaware. I mean, how many times have we read science fiction where the entire planet has exactly the same ecosystem every flipping where? Right. Um, you know, and the entire planet basically is the size of Delaware. Um, and you're going like, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I just somehow I have this trouble picturing, you know, the Bengal tiger surviving in the tundra. I mean, you know, maybe the Siberian tiger. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but that's upland gorilla dolphins. Yes. <laughs> I remember. Uh, or the Reese's Corpus. Uh, <laughs> I remember texting speaker early on. And I said, but how does this, this, this star drive work? And he's like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you guys invent that. <laughs> I said, goes I'm, fast. Not, I'm not Les Johnson. You know, I'm just, I just write this stuff. Uh, so I, we whizzy wigged it at some point, I remember, but that was, I remember that early conversation. I was just working, speaker like, I don't know. The well, it's working well. <laughs> well, in the case of my story, it's all that was working well. well that's so, true, but it, but it was working well. <laughs> Kathy brings up a really good point. Um, when I first started participating in science fiction convention panels, I was on a panel that was world building. And the whole idea was actually creating and building the world. And I'm sitting here and I'm going, is none of you a biologist? Um, my middle degree is in aquatic biology. Uh, everybody knows me as being physiologist, pharmacologist, neuroscientist. Uh, but I have a master's degree in biology and it was in an aquatic biology department. And so I studied things like lake formation and rivers and ecosystems and oceanography. And why do, uh, why do you develop a certain size of uh, sand grains in a particular location? And so I looked at this and I said, okay, we have a great opportunity to do something with a rain shadow. And I think most of the time, if you were to sit down and tell a bunch of people who were world building that you have to make sure that the, uh, if your winds are blowing from the west to the east, then the west side of the island, if it's got a mountain chain, if the west side of the island is going to be wet and the east side is going to be dry and why you've got to do all this kind of stuff. Two and hours. What's that? Two hours on rain shadows. Uh, yes, we did. And, 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 uh, That's Brent, after I, we argued about the jet stream. <laughs> after the fact, Brent and I figured out the weather patterns for you, the world. You do realize after this, the fact. Is, this is why God works solo. Yes. <laughs> I'm just saying, okay. Just, yeah. But it, uh, 
you know, it was one of those things that I wanted to get it right. And then you know, Kathy comes in because Kathy knows a lot of the same, uh, the same details and a lot of the same science behind it. Uh, what was really fun was watching Brent and Kathy and, and Doc uh, Philip Wallrab work out the details of the prion disease. That one was fun because I backed off and let them play with that. Uh, and it was, it was fun to watch them figure it out. And then we had to use elements of it for some of the other stories as well once they figured it out. But it was a lot of fun watching that development. Yeah, and you were talking about, you know, you said something goes wrong, but there's a lot of things that go wrong. And this is one of the things that there is a, um, a lot of, well, all the dogs die off, right, or all or most, and then the cattle uh, die off. And so this is, Kathy's story is essentially about uh, domesticating a, a native um, animal. Uh, so... That was yet another, and yeah, like you said, it, it goes through a few different stories that we see this. And it, it's interesting because it, you know, um, it's not the same thing in every story. It, it, the way it works in is, uh, is different. And again, it just makes it feel like this is a real world uh, well, because well, it doesn't have just one singular effect a few times. It, it all is the, a web. One of the things that I was aware of as a historian while we were working on this is that the majority of early European colonies actually failed in the New World. Uh, and they failed because of things that the colonists couldn't predict ahead of time or that they didn't have the combination of technology or mental flexibility uh, to deal with when they, when they encountered them. Um, and there were societal factors, uh, you know, that, that, were, that were involved. And there were disease factors. Um, although I will say the Europeans, by and large, were the ones bringing the disease rather than running into the unexpected disease once they got there. On um, the other hand, there yeah. were par parasites native to the New World that did a number mm -hmm. on a lot of the domesticated animals that were brought over. Well, and um, I'm thinking that Yellowjack and some of those diseases out of the Caribbean were not unknown, but the, the virulence uh, of, of what the Europeans discovered when they got there. Uh, the climate was so different. Yeah. But, but, but my point is that from my perspective in, in looking at this, this anthology is these guys were a transatlantic colony. Okay, not even in the age of sail, because they couldn't go home again yep. once they got there. Now, you know, the ship brings you, drops you off, and it's going to be back in six months if you're still alive, okay, kind of thing. That's part of the whole European colonization experience. But it, there's actually a point in my story um, where uh, the... Um, Dupre, captain, the, the guy who becomes yeah. the captain, Joni's friend, is reflecting on the fact that, you know, the colonization of the solar system was replete with examples of things that went wrong, but there was always someone there to at least try to mount a rescue expedition. And in the case of Trappist, there is no possibility of anyone mounting 
a rescue operation. And he's sitting there and he's going like, you know, we could we could have done this if any one of the things that happened to us hadn't happened. Yeah. Is pretty much is pretty much what he's saying. Let me let me follow up on something that David just said. Um the the book Stellaris, People of the Stars, grew out of discussions uh at the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshops, um, now called the Interstellar Research Group. And every 18 months, this group of scientists, engineers, writers, and dreamers gets together and talks about the issues of what we need to solve, what we should be looking to do in order to support a truly interstellar society. One of the discussions that has come up from time to time is, do we use what's called the Atlantic model for colonization or the Pacific model. The Atlantic model is you load absolutely everything you think you're gonna need in a boat and you sail across the ocean until you get to where you're gonna be, you unload everything and you build your colony. And you send the boats back and hopefully at some point in the future, you get a resupply. The Pacific model is island hopping. You go to the next island and you establish your colony, and you take a portion of that colony to go to the next island. And you, t and you establish a colony, you take a portion of it, and you go to the next island. Two totally different models. And we at, uh, at IRG actually will argue uh, at length at uh, uh, which of the two models is the better one to choose. Uh, exploring the... Colonizing the solar system will very likely be Pacific model, but colonizing another world is probably going to be Atlantic model. It, it would almost, it would, well, okay, this is going to sound strange, but the way that it will work best will probably be the Pacific model in Atlantic-sized increments. Yeah. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. yeah. With, with the frontier extending from the frontier rather yeah. than trying to do the, you know, the deep, deep, deep from the center. Um, especially uh, if we can't figure out how to, how to cheat Einstein. Um, right. You know, I haven't given up on that. Okay. I mean, you know, it's a theory. It's a theory. <laughs> I think it's pretty safe to say at this point too, we won't be seeing governments doing it probably either. Well, I would hope not. Um, right. Yeah. Well, the the nature the nature of governments, uh, this is neither left nor right. The nature of governments is to govern, to to be in control of a system. And governments, by and large, are not huge fans of extending to an area that they can't control. And you're talking interstellar distances. There's no way in the world that a government based in the soul system is going to be able to, to govern a colony in the Trappist system. Um, so no, I don't think that government is going to be, the only way that government is gonna get involved, I think, big scale in something like interstellar expansion is going to be if there's some really weird variant of the great power rivalry and you're all doing like Chinese multi-generational thinking and you can't afford to allow the bad guys to colonize more planets than your guys do because their great, 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 great grandchildren are gonna come pick on yours, okay? So 
I've played this game. Yes. <laughs> I have two, actually. <laughs> but you the... created this game, Mark. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> but the, 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 one of the things about the founder effect is that it is, for one of a, a better term, it's a one-off. It's a single expedition. It's not right. being tied into a greater scheme of organized expansion. These are a bunch of ornery individualists who wanted to go out there, but they then have to be very cooperative when they get there if they're going to survive. Um, and I think probably the trickiest part of any interstellar expedition is going to be personnel selection, which is touched on in, in, in this uh, story. Yeah. yeah, Brad Torgerson's story touches on personnel selection. Mm -hmm. uh, Les Johnson's story touches on it. Um, well, in a way, Mark's story, like, right, is yeah. that guy. Yeah, he's like, actually yeah. refused from the, the, the <laughs> later missions and ends up leading <laughs> the first one instead. Yeah, it's yeah exactly oh, Ferguson's story yeah okay i couldn't remember which one that was yeah I did. about that so there is another story out there there is a founder effect story that is not in the book the lost this feels like a legend you know a... <laughs> um it is and it's and and the story is named apple seed and uh um i have been talking with tony and tony uh and we're looking to run that on the bain website uh next month and Good. Appleseed is another, it's another example of a rugged individualist, uh, an iconoclast who does not get along with a government. And uh, he will end up uh, on the, on Cistercia, the planet. Uh, um, I have to say that a lot of the naming was uh, collaborative between David and I because we we played around with the tradition of the Trappist monks for this. Uh, but Cistercia is uh, is the name of our planet, and our Appleseed character will show up eventually on Cistercia. So there is a story out there, and it is very much what. Uh, David just talked about in terms of the fact that the people who are going to end up in a colony like this are probably going to be the ones that don't get along with the governments all that well. If you get along with the government, you're happy where you are. So why leave? Um, that Jim Bain and I used to have uh, an argument about interstellar exploration. His theory was that, well, it's inevitable. We're going to do it. And I'm like, why do you think it's inevitable, Jim? And he said, because life at the bottom of a, of a gravity well is ugly, brutish, and short. And I said, Jim, you're talking about colonizing another system with habitable planets. If all you want to do is live in a habitat, why leave the one you're in? Mm -hmm. It's a big star system. You can build habitats all over the place. Well, they won't do that. They'll go to other star systems. And I said, why? And he said, because they will. <laughs> and I said, okay, Jim, you're writing the checks. I can live with that. <laughs> yeah. I've had this argument at IRG because a, um, a group discussion a few years back was 
on what type of ship are we going to take to the stars? Mm -hmm. And there was an entire group and Kathy's giving me the look uh, because she was there <laughs> because she was there. And there was an entire group that says, we're going to, we're going to take asteroids and hollow them out and we're going to make full habitats and we're going to put engines on them and we're going to go to the stars with a world ship. And I looked at them and I said, why, why leave? Why leave? Thank you. Yes. Uh, if, if you've got that, why leave? So one of the big <laughs> arguments is that the decision will be the engineering issues. If yeah. you can make large, you know, grained habitats in the solar system, like David said, why go to another solar system then? You know, we have enough room in our solar system for a hundred trillion human yeah. beings. I don't, you know, everything we have is here and it's yeah. close to habitable planets. It's got everything you want. Yeah. See, I've argued that what we actually are going to have a lot of people is going for the get rich big scheme. Because if you look at colonization, we had spices, we had tea, we had gold and silver from the Americas, we had tobacco. Yeah, but interstellar, you're not going to be able to do export trade back home unless we figure out how to cheat Einstein. But we're if we get we're expecting our first ship, shipment back in 150 years. Yeah. <laughs> By but golly, we'll is, all be rich then. <laughs> if you have people that value, I want to be rich in real estate. Yeah. I want to have, you know, my own little continent. The only way that's really possible right now is if I go find a new continent to make either, my own. Well, either that or if you kind of like, you know, can organize a large enough army, you could go take somebody else's away from them and stay home. Uh, but generally speaking, now I, th I think that an awful lot of there's going to be a certain percentage of human beings who are Rudyard Kipling's, you know, something waiting go and find it kind of thing they want to go and they want to look and they want to see okay there is a much smaller percentage of those people than the romantics among us myself included would like to believe okay um but when you have four billion people a small percentage can still be a very large absolute number um, so I think that there are going to be those among us who are Jim Baines. Well, of course they're going to go, uh, kind of thing. Okay. And not because they expect to get rich, you know, it's because I got to go see what's out there. Okay. Uh, the same kind of lunatics who are like, okay, if we sail West far enough, surely we'll reach the spice islands. Okay. Um, now that was the profit motive. But, I mean, let's think about these guys who are getting on the 90-foot sailing ships to or, sail or across the North Atlantic. Or, <laughs> or even your Polynesians on their twin-hulled catamarans. Just, yes. Yeah. You think, I don't know how they had enough room for their balls on those things, to tell you the truth. But. Yeah. It's, it's it, just, it, it's, you know. I, okay. One of the things, Wait. one of the things that is different in the in the Pacific versus the Atlantic colonization model is that the Atlantic model was based on an expectation of returning treasure. Mm -hmm. The Pacific, as Kathy was just trying to say there, was based on an expectation of we need to go to the next place. I want my own little continent. Well, well. And realistically colonizing Mars will be the Pacific because we're not going there to, to find vast wealth. We have no idea if there's anything that are worth anything. It's the, the dream that, you know, the earth is far too fragile of a basket to keep all of our eggs. Yeah, that, 
that I think is the one thing that seriously could lead to government involvement in this is is sort of the okay if you think about uh kennedy and the race to the moon he was looking at a national challenge but he's also looking at a technology enabling process and the the god knows you know we are still reaping benefits from from that even though uh i i don't think that uh that NASA is not the long-term sustainable model, and it's yep. not the long-term sustainable model primarily because you got government budget constraints. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and so I figured in the 1970s that we were really going to see the exploitation of space when we reached a point at which the supporting technology made it commercially viable. As it would spin off and get its own endeavor. momentum. Exactly. Um, but that doesn't mean that you couldn't see a government project which says, in effect, mm-hmm. okay, look, the, the solar system is too small a basket to keep all our eggs in. So we are going to commit to launch an interstellar ship in 50 years from today. And in addition to building the ship and getting out beyond, we will have all of the infrastructure development, all the tech development, et cetera, et cetera, right here at home. Okay. The the fix earth first idiots in 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 the founder effect were resolutely not looking at the fact that the spin-off technology of building this ship just the infrastructure involved was going to be of huge benefit to the solar system and to earth. Okay. And that is actually one thing that governments are almost better at than private industry, private industry, private interest groups go where their own desires and their own profit motive take them. Okay. If an institutionalized goal requires an institution to formulate it, okay? Um, And they might not, they probably will not do it anywhere near as efficiently as private industry would have done it, okay? But private industry wouldn't have done it in the first place. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And because private industry, the guys who are going to see a profit in going to the stars are going to be the guys who run Joe's Starships, Okay, yeah. we're gonna yeah. we're gonna get filthy rich building ships for the lunatics to go to the stars in. Okay, and we're gonna yeah, use it all. In Boca Chica, Texas. <laughs> yes, yes, you know, and, and we're gonna use it all to buy a place in the Hamptons. I mean, you know, it, it's 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 or or, or to to build our habitat. Place in the Hamptons. They're going to use it to buy the Hamptons. (laughs) You know, it's a matter of of less than years after the first humans stay on Mars, they'll be be plotting out acres and people will own stuff. It's just how it's going to work. There's back to what Brent said. It's it's real estate. I mean, who wouldn't want a hunk of Mars and be able to put your own little... I want an RV on Mars. That's what I want. That's that's the whole thing. My plan is to get rich opening a truck stop on the moon that everyone has to stop by on the way back and forth. That's where bread. I'm cashing eat, in. Eat but bread. are you going to have Cheetos there? That's all I want to know. I actually have a story I'll tell you about offline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I want to. I want to. By the way, David mentioned the fix it, fix Earth first. Um, that's an invention of Dan Hoyt. Uh, Dan created that. Um, the specific instance that we used uh, and sprinkled through several stories on uh, uh, in the Founder Effect is just another example of the uh, the continuity things that Sandra and I worked on. Uh, for his story in Stellaris, People of the Stars, Dan Hoyt created an activist group called Fix Earth First, and we referred to them as the Pfeffers. And when Les Johnson was writing his story for the Founder Effect, and he wanted uh, an equivalent organization, I said, hey, Les, why don't you make them Pfeffers? And since Les and I had edited Stellaris, he remembered and he says, Oh yeah, that's a great idea. So then we sprinkled that through as well, um, and and again we did we did smoothing. We did a little bit of uh, work with the uh, with the encyclopedia entries to uh, to help fill in some gaps and put things in place. Your your fingerprints are actually all through this anthology. Okay, I cleaned not... my hands. I washed my hands. <laughs> well, okay. I'm sorry, Rob. You weren't wearing your gloves. Okay, but no. The 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 an anthology like this takes its tone from the authors, the writers, but the writers take their tone from the editors. Okay, the editors tell us what they want. And then it's kind of like jazz, okay? They they give us the they give us the bass melody, and each of us goes out there and starts doing our own riffs on it uh, and whatnot. But they have to be able to take what we've done, and in terms of the anthology, internalize it. They have to be able to coordinate it. They have to be able to do the traffic control, um, and so even if within any given story, there's minimal input from the editors. There's a huge amount of input from the editors in terms of where these stories slot together, how they fit together, um, and, and getting those little bridging continuity details into place that the writers may not have even known existed when they wrote their story. I didn't know uh, that a, a lot of the stuff that winds up being those 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 referential elements you know it didn't exist when 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 i did the first when i did kamikura okay right. by the time i got to fire from heaven um at at the end of it a lot of that detail had been worked into the into the framework of the picture and so i was able to take it and integrate it into Dupre's viewpoint about what's going on and how they got to where they are and the state of the colony at that point. But I couldn't have done that at the time that I did Kamakura because none of it existed. Um, and it existed in its final form because of the other writers who wrote the stories that contained those kernels. But those stories were able to be written because of the traffic control that was coming out of the editors. They, they, they could have been written anyway, but they would have been written in a different form. And the, the, um, 
the sense of um, of kinship, of of this familial relationship between them, would have been much weaker without the type of editorial guidance and input that we had. Well, this is where I then go back and deflect any attention from myself and talk again <laughs> about Sandra working with each of the authors. We have a wonderful mix of, uh, I won't use the phrase senior authors for uh, for uh, David and myself, but um, a mix of Go ahead, go just say the old farts. Yeah, okay, okay. Right. yeah, so okay, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Season. <laughs> season, season vets, you yeah, you go. So um, we had a we have a great mix of experience, and from what I'm seeing of what people like about the the volume so far, is that doesn't really come through, uh, and that we owe to Sandra, uh, because whereas I may have been working with little details of, okay, how are these two going to fit together? She's working with a number of the younger authors. Oh, do you want to put it this way? Or do you want to put it that way? Here's what you can do to make mm -hmm. this have a little more impact. She's working a lot more uh, behind the scenes, even more so than I was uh, on, on putting this together. Um, and I know she's shy and she's not going to say that <laughs> about her own <laughs> contributions, but really it was very, very important. Um, we had, uh, we have a, an article, uh, we have a, we have a story that is written as if it were a Sunday newspaper feature. And Sunday newspaper features are written in a style that is not necessarily compatible with the type of style that we would use for an anthology. So that needed to be an interactive work. How do you keep the feel and make it fit the style? And um, we, those of us who've written for a while know that there are editors that will change your voice in the, in, in the interest of making it fit the style. And we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that at all. So it had to be a highly iterative process mm -hmm. um, with the authors. The, the hardest thing about editing is not telling the writer how to fix it. The hardest part is telling the writer, this is what needs to be fixed. And then letting the writer figure out how to fix it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the mark of a good editor is that that is what he or she does. The mark of a bad editor or somebody who is really under the gun time-wise is that, okay, this is the way we need to approach it. Uh, Tony, <laughs> uncompromising honor. I handed in the manuscript and Tony's like, Oh my, this is long. She said, I'm, I'm, she, said, so I'm, I'm, she said, she started reading it. She was, she was, she needed to cut it. Okay. And she got to the end and she said, Hmm. Okay. I've read the entire manuscript, David. And I said, okay. She said, I was looking specifically for, for things to, to, to cut. I said, okay. She said, you need to add two scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, Okay, <laughs> you know. Oh, that's dangerous. How many scenes did you then give her at that only, point? <laughs> only two, and one of them was only 600 words. Um, but um, it, 
one of the things that is different between doing uh, a shared anthology like this and doing a solo book is that you have a greater freedom in doing uh, work with a solo author to saying, well, that didn't go where I expected to go, but it works, so let's do that instead. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In the anthology approach, it's got to work with the other components of the anthology. So it, it's okay to go somewhere that you didn't think you were going to go, but where you wind up has to still fill a hole in the anthology. And so I think that editing anthologies and editing authors are two different but related disciplines. They, 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 they need two different approaches. And somebody who's good at one may not be good at the other. I hate that Mark has had to step away right as you say that because there was an opportunity that presented itself. Um, and it had to do with the final disposition of David Palmer mm -hmm. in uh, Fire Down to Earth. And Fire, Fire from Heaven, Fire Down to Earth. A yep. uh, couple of different working titles as we work, went through <laughs> it. Um, and so the issue is... He's back. What, he's back. Yeah, he's back. So the issue is what happened to David Palmer. And we went through a couple of different versions of it. And uh, finally settled on something that was what Mark wanted in the first place. And a little bit of what I wanted to see happen. But it gave an, an opportunity because then with what Mark had built, what, what you had built, and in particular with what Brent had built for Loss of Beaver Flight, gave the opportunity for an epilogue that could put all of this together in a perspective, again, that, main, that maintained the idea of a legend. Um, because I went back, to, I went back to, to Mark and said, it needs another scene. And... Um, and Mark sent something to me and I, and I, and I had said, needs another scene and maybe it's such and such. And he sent something else to me and, and I really liked it. And it went to the publisher publisher says, yeah, but needs a tweak. And it ended up being kind of back to what Mark had in the first place, but with the extra scene and uh, and again, we looked at it and we go, yeah, that works. And, and we've got the perfect way to put it all back together again and tie it in uh, with something that comes out of loss of beaver flight. And it was, and again, it was fun. Well, I, another thing that is, uh, it's true of, of anything that you write is you have to reach a point at which it's done. It's baked. Um, and you have to say, okay, this is good. You may still be have that suspicion that if I just worked on it for another 14 years, it would be even better, okay? But you have to reach the point at which everything has gelled, and you've got that sense of, of finished effort, okay? I, that is my worst problem as as a writer well it was before the concussion anyway uh, uh which was that the um i never wanted to let go and i had to learn how to do that uh i had to learn how to do that fairly early in my career actually 
But even now, I'll go back and like for right this minute, I'm rereading Road to Hell because Joelle and I need to sit down and talk about the, the next project. And I'm going through, and among other things, I'm finding a whole bunch of typos that got by us uh, the first time around. But I'm still going through and thinking about, boy, you know, I could tweak that line and do this. I could tweak that line and do that. And I'm like, no, you can't. You can make a trilogy out of it. Yeah, right. I could (laughs) easily, easily, yeah. Um, But that's that's hard. That's hard because this is your your heart child, not just your brain child. Okay, and saying, okay, go. Do 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 well, (laughs) you know, but. I've got two 19-year-olds, and I have uh, uh, Michael will be 18 in two days. Wow. <laughs> and he is going directly into the Marines out of high school. That was oh, his wow. decision, his decision. Um, and I'm sitting here going, what happened to my babies? Okay. I like who they turned into, but what happened to my babies? All right. Well, you go through that in sort of an intellectual, emotional way with the stories that you write, okay? You have to say, all right, you're grown up now. Go, I hope you succeed. I'd like to be able to pay the rent, you know? Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I have to say that um, Ben Bova, I was on a panel with Ben, and somebody asked him if, as, as in all of his editorial experience, if he found a way to deal with writer's block. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I have an infallible way to cure writer's block. Everybody goes, say what? He says, oh, it's very simple. You take the credit cards away. That was his method was he would make money and then he would go live on his boat in Florida. And then he said, then my accountant will call me and say, the money's running out and then I have a new idea all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's amazing. I, I want to talk about like two more things uh, maybe. And David said this feel, uh, has a familiar relationship talking about the stories, but I think, and I wasn't part of the process, but from you listening to you all and just knowing the, um, the culture of Bain and that I know a lot of this was sat in uh around at cons this i think this listen to you guys talk about how this was collaborative reminded me a lot of like the way bands work and you know the, i'll play this part well i'll play the drums this way well then i'll actually do this with the guitar if you're going to do that with the drums and you know and um this very much felt like a book anyone can read of course but that uh it, it felt a very bane book on some level too um, and that extends to some of the, I think, little in-jokes and naming of things. And I just wondered how that sort of convention, uh, you know, con, uh, what's the word, culture, and the culture of Bane, and um, being involved with things like, you're talking about the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Authority, which now I don't remember the other, the new term for it, but how that kind Interstellar of- Interstellar Research Group. Okay, how that, how that played into this uh both in maybe its conception and then throughout uh until we publish it i, I would well, say if i can oh sorry yeah i was just gonna say i'll bet you if you dug all the way down rob do you wind up at liberty con 
Yes, <laughs> you do. I thought you probably did. <laughs> you do. Uh, you David, you end up at Liberty Con or Dragon Con. I can't My fault. It. It's your fault. I started going to Liberty Con. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, okay, fine. It's your fault, man. I, but <laughs> all right, I'll take credit. <laughs> all right, right. But but to an extent, it also it also uh, owes to Bain's Bar. Mm-hmm. Okay, so via Bain's Bar, I met Tom Cratman. Via Tom Cratman, I met Vivian Raper. Um, via Bain's Bar, I met uh, the Hoyts. I met uh, Brent. And via Liberty Con, I met uh, David and Kathy. And via Liberty Con, Stellar Con, Raven Con, and Dragon Con and several others in between met a number of the other authors who were involved with this. And so there is a definite Bane thread to it um, while, and yet it's not. I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, there's, a, there's a convention feel. And we have had a, tra- a, a tradition for years of staying up until three, four, and a.m. and later. I don't uh, know you guys did. I, you know, at DragonCon, I'm like, is it time for bed yet? And you guys are all still going. <laughs> yeah, we're still going. And, 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 and y'all are waking up while we're still, while we're just now going to sleep. Um, and we do things like uh, destroy the world and recreate it. Um, and so it, it definitely grows out of that. A number of the stories were pitched to me by their authors Bob at drunk. the Bane brunch <laughs> at Dragon Con. <laughs> I, I, I think... Okay. Bane is a community of writers as well as a publishing house. And... The remarkable thing to me about the Bain community is its diversity. In an era when we are looking at so much tribalism reasserting itself in our greater society and whatnot, you can find people of just about any political persuasion in the Bain community. I, I couldn't figure out why my Facebook posts kept turning into dumpster fires, you know, with people <laughs> coming in and jumping on everything. Um, and the, the thing is that my reading audience is very, very diverse. And so they were looking at my posts and then their diversity was getting bruised and they were, they were piling on each other. And so I was like, guys, this isn't why we're doing this. Bain manages to do that internally without the dumpster fire. And the result is that when you do a project like this, you have people who are either are or in the process become friends working together and being considerate of their differences as well as focusing on the similarities that brought them together. Okay. Um, and to do that requires a degree of, of mutual respect, of, of, of um, 
for want of a better term, and we seem to be in, this seems to be in short supply these days, rationality. Um, and I think that it shows in the final product. There is a story, there is a founder effect story that I would like to see told. To do it right, it's going to have to be written by a person who ascribes to the political philosophy that is behind is the motivation for the event that takes place. I have someone in mind to write it. Uh, should we get to that point? And I and and I know from the fat from the start that it's got to be played straight. It can't be cartoonish. It can't be a caricature mm -hmm. or anything like that. And I think that it will make for a very enjoyable story. And I think that that's something that we need to to keep in mind as we put these things together. When 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 Eric Flint created Victor Kasha for the Honorverse, okay. <laughs> Victor is very much modeled on Eric's understanding of the early NKVD uh, 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 agents, the folks who were genuine servants of the revolution, you know, kind of thing. And it's very easy for someone who is a convinced uh, Western capitalist humanist such as myself to forget that those people actually existed, okay? To lose them in the, in the underbrush of what came later, okay? Um, and having those additional voices available, and as you say, having them available straight, not as a, a strained through someone else's preconceptions. Um, for one thing, it makes for a damn good story. For another thing, it makes for an intellectually honest story. Yeah. Yeah. Whether whether we want to or not, the instant we start writing a story, we step up onto a soapbox. It may not be our intention at all, but what we believe, our concept of the universe and how it works, is where we start from when we start building characters, when we start building situations. And so it infuses everything that we do. Um, I try to play fair in my own world yep. building with, with, with alternate viewpoints, but I can very easily just by putting a thought that would normally be anathema to you into the mind of a character who is sympathetic to you, make that idea much more accessible to you than it was before you read the story. Um, and I think that authors owe it to their audiences to be to play it straight, okay? Not to create straw men that we can that we can kick over with with incredible ease in order to make our point. Because what makes a story work is the human element of the story, and humans are complex. And bad storytelling simplifies them. I think it's very interesting that so many of the actors and actresses that play villains uh, turn out to be some of the nicest people that you could meet. And they relish the 
bad guy aspect, bad guy, bad girl aspect of the character they play simply because they're trying to do the best they can and they make it and they make it enjoyable. And so it's possible to like uh, the character that comes to mind is from Stargate SG-1. Uh, Cliff Simon played Ball, who was, and Ball was one of the bad guys, one of the Goa Uld. He was also one of the most enjoyable bad guys in the, in the franchise. Um, number one, because he did play it straight. He played Sinister very, very well. But the actor obviously enjoyed what he was doing I, I spoke with him at dragon con one year he says oh i love it and he said you can have so much fun with the bad guy mm -hmm. and and you have to play it straight yeah i had a conversation like that with brian james okay because he was constantly being cast as as the villain the villain the villain um and i don't know there's there's a wesley snipes movie um can't remember the name, but there's a murder in the White House, and Brian James. Murder is this, at sixteen hundred. Okay, Brian James is this this sinister FBI agent who's following them everywhere they go, and you just know it's Brian James. He's the bad guy. You find out at the end of the movie, his job has been to keep them alive <laughs> this whole time while they're doing the investigation. In in the in the uh, in the um, uh, series, The Mandalorian, Giancarlo Esposito is playing an excellent bad guy. Uh, and he's playing it straight. And the, some of the social media comments he's made about his daughter saying, no, don't do that. And he says, I will do what I want to. And, and, you, and you like characters like that. You want characters like that. Rick, make like it Gerald Jones playing Thulsa Doom. He said it was one of his favorite roles. Yeah. He just completely got into the role, and you can tell when he did it. Oh, well, Rickman. Alan Rickman, when he oh, yeah. decides yes. to I – mean, oh, man, talk about – you know, he was the only guy in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, who was actually having a good time. <laughs> Seems to be the only one who was actually acting, too. Well, he, 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 he knew what he was in the middle of. You know? <laughs> cut out your hearts with a spoon. Yeah. So, no, so the, it will hurt more. <laughs> oh, and cancel Christmas. Yes, yes, yes. You, my room, two o'clock. You, my room, four o'clock. <laughs> so the bad guys can be as much fun as the good guys. And and to do it, you want to you wanna play it straight. Well, and the, the bad guys can be as much fun to write yeah. as the good guys. As long as you the, can resist the mustache twirling. Yeah, well, you know, to make make them women, then you don't have mustache to twirl. You're good. Uh, <laughs> well, it's no guarantee the, of that. <laughs> but the the um, uh, I do have a problem sometimes with villains who I dislike so much that I don't want to spend any time in their heads, but I have to because they have to be consistent and much as I hate them, I have to play fair with them too. That's mm -hmm. by Clinton in safe hold is uh, an example of that. I felt like going and taking a shower every time I did an internal <laughs> perspective from him. Uh, but he had to be who he was. Um, and the other thing that's really hard is remembering that the villain is seldom the villain in, the, in his own mind. Oh, right, right. Uh, the writing of Gul Dukat from DS9 is a good example of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
the good mm. the guy who doesn't see himself as a bad guy he's he's a patriot actually he's doing his job well, actually bringing up the mandalorian have seen a little bit of that i feel like with the empire no spoilers or anything for that but you know where maybe they you know anyway view things differently than you know we're we, trying to create order we're not the best. yeah right yeah well in that great I, line from warner herzog he's the empire improves everything it touches you know and it's just like <laughs> yeah. so great <laughs> may i see i was sad to see him go he was a great character i know there, right that is a there little. is a more there's a more recent character quote which is they say they want freedom what they really want is order mm -hmm. yeah well, and, and, you know, the scary thing about it is the percentage of people for whom that's true. Mm -hmm. Freedom, okay, freedom is messy. Oh, yes. All right. Well, freedom, freedom, freedom is messy because if you're going to exercise it, you have to allow the people you hate to exercise it, too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so most people would much rather make that guy sit down and shut up and the the ability to not realize that as soon as you begin doing that you legitimize making anybody including you mm -hmm. sit down and shut up yep um, you know this is this is an excellent point to tie it back to the founder effect because that's what les johnson did with his story uh we have the whole idea of we're going to go off and we're going to build a colony at a planet around another sun that's 39 light years away. It's going to take us 160 years to get there. What's our motivation for doing it? And we've got a guy whose motivation is not pure. No. Not at all. And, and we're not talking mercenary. For, for those who haven't read it, I won't spoil it. But this is not somebody who wanted to do it for gain. He didn't want to do it for political reasons, necessarily. He didn't want to do it. He had a very, very selfish reason. And then once, once his family was safe, he had other plans. And, and I like, thought that was, a, that was a nice way to play it as well. It was kind of like Bill Gates going to the dark side. <laughs> okay. Going I mean, to yeah. No comments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Further to the dark side. Um, I have no idea what just happened to my camera, but boy, I, you know, your camera has been drinking or something. Yes, I, someone, uh, you know, this is this is not the droid you're looking for. <laughs> well, we're we're well, we're. You know, I said an hour-ish and we all chuckled, but we're about two hours now. So I'm, we probably need to start thinking about wrapping it up as fun as this has been. But I do want to talk about, I'll put a little, you know what, I'll do it with special effects. But the cover, I'll put it here. Imagine the cover um, of the book as this great illustration. I always like to talk about the artists. And um, I think it's Sam Kennedy. Sam Kennedy. It is Sam Kennedy. Yeah. Yes. And I like I loved it because it had this, it to me synthesized kind of the theme of the book in that it's, it is hard science fiction, but it's also got a very mythic feel to it. And I really like that. Um, I don't know. If so one of the reviewers who has, uh, who reviewed this for uh, amazing stories uh, contacted me because uh, he wanted a couple ideas. He says, I've got one quibble that's with the cover because your book's not about heroes. And I go, 
Yeah, but these guys are heroes in their own mind. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you wanted to pin a character to that cover, uh, the legend of Jimmy V, that's what he feels. That's what he thinks he is. That's how he views himself. But we also have a very, very reluctant hero in George Holt from, uh, from Phil Wolrab's story. And that one is one where you have a person who does not feel like a hero and a statue gets erected in his honor based on his, uh, on his actions. And uh, you have, um, you have David Palmer uh, from, uh, from the Prometheus uh, from, from Mark's story who would have liked to have been remembered as a hero. Um, uh, even if that wasn't really the type of person he was to start with, he ended up doing something heroic. Uh, so I, when, when, when Tony and I talked about cover ideas and then, and then this, and then this cover comes back from Sam Kennedy, I look at it and I go, yeah, that captures, that captures the feel of the book. It's, it's, it's a golden age of science fiction type cover. Uh, uh, it's a hero pose, and yet it's very accessible to what the uh, to what the characters may have wanted for themselves or may not have wanted for themselves. And I thought it was just great fun. Well, I think it also speaks to how the characters' inheritors see the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, because whether they saw themselves as heroes in the uh, you know the the conquering pose or not three generations down the road when you look back and you realize we survived by our toenails because this guy did that and that guy did the other whether they were heroic in their own minds or not you recognize that they were heroic in stature yeah in terms of the footprint that they left and that i think is really true of almost every hero the self-aware heroes are not the ones we tend to remember yeah mm -hmm. But we do have a splody spaceship on the cover. That's true. So it is truly a Bane book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, can't go wrong there. Why? You know, if it works, if it ain't broke, go fix it. So if it ain't broke, blow it up. Blow it okay, up. yeah, you know. Wait, have you been talking to Mike? No, 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 no. But there are very few problems you can't solve with an FC4. We've had this, believe me, that was part of the voting vow discussion. <laughs> no C4 at the reception. Yeah. Well, folks, I think we'll probably wrap it up there. It's been such a pleasure. Um, I, we've, been, we've said the title a few times. Everyone did a good job of working that in, but it's The Founder Effect. It's out now in trade paperback and ebook. Uh, you can get it on bang.com if you like it DRM free, or you can get it wherever you get your ebooks or your paper books. Um, thanks so much to everybody for coming on. Uh, Robert E. Hampson, uh, Sandra L. Medlock, um, Mr. Mark Wandry, uh, Brent Roeder, David Weber, and Kathy Smith. Thank you so much for being on the Bain Free Radio Hour. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up our discussion of the Founder Effect. And now we continue our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington masterpiece, 
uncompromising honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the star kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now, the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now, Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. Evaldi Orbital Works Number 1. Beowulf System. Come on! Come on, damn you! Jacqueline Somerset Caruso pounded on the arm of her chair as she watched the block ship's wedges come up. As the manager of Evaldi of Beowulf's Orbital Works One, she'd long since realized that if the Sollies ever got into Beowulf space, her facility and her people had to be priority targets. But like everyone else in Beowulf, she'd known the Sollies were going after Cassandra, not Beowulf. Move your arses, she snarled at the unmanned ships positioned to protect the sprawling platform. Why can't you... They'd been jockeyed into place, along with scores of other block ships, on reaction thrusters to prevent the Sollies from spotting them sooner, and formed up in vast hemispheres, hollow domes several layers thick with their open ends toward the planet, to protect the most critical infrastructure and the major habitats. In theory, they were placed to intercept any energy fire from anywhere other than the planetary surface, but if they didn't get their wedges fully online in time... In position, Barney Fedekoff Stimson announced over the intercom. Blockship wedges are up and in position. Yes! Somerset Caruso pounded the chair arm even harder. Yes! That was another installment in our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Robert E. Hampson, Sandra L. Medlock, David Weber, Catherine L. Smith, Mark H. Wandry, and Brent Roeder. And thanks as always to podcast host Tony Daniel for letting me sit in this week. You know, it's the strangest thing. Last week, just as I stopped recording the podcast, a Western Union courier showed up on my doorstep bearing a letter from 1885 saying that there was some sort of time travel mishap involving an old courthouse and a bolt of lightning and that Tony somehow managed to get himself transported back to the Old West. I'm going to go see if I can get him back to host the podcast next week. Until that time, I'm David F. Shararad, coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us next week here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.